Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey guys, this is Dr. Rob. I wanted to do a solo show for you because I get so many questions about what treatment is for sex addiction, sexual compulsivity, hypersexuality. What is treatment like and what do we provide or what does anybody provide when you're doing this work? Um, As some of you know, I run a treatment center called Seeking Integrity. You can find out more about that at seekingintegrity.com. And I have been running treatment centers for sex and love addiction for nearly 25 years. So um, I guess I know a few things about this. And, um, you know, I, I often get the question, what do you do in treatment? How could you possibly be dealing with these issues and help anybody? Do things really ever change? You know, what is the point? All of that. And I can completely understand that most folks wouldn't have a clue what we do during those two weeks or those 28 days. And so I wanted to rattle down a couple of the gifts I think that recovery or the process of treatment brings so that you can understand what happens in treatment. First of all, you have to understand that someone who comes into a treatment center is pretty clueless about why they're there. I know that if you've been through treatment or you know someone is about to go through it, you're thinking, well, they're going there to save their marriage. They're going there to help uh, raise our kids and be present. They're going because they want to learn how to date. And and those things are probably true, but that's not always why somebody come, says they're coming into treatment. In my experience, far more people come, people come into treatment and say things like, I want to be a better person. I want to be a better dad. I want to you know, have better feelings about myself. And that's all very lovely. But one of the first things we have to do in treatment is understand why is someone coming in? And if I can get to the very bottom of why they're coming to see me, that is a real win for me or see any of us in our programs because the work is about not about being a better person. That just doesn't cut it. We hope that that comes over time. But in the beginning, it's about having some integrity, You know, beginning to live your life in a way that doesn't harm other people or harm yourself. And the reason to come in for treatment related to that is because you're hurting a spouse, you're hurting someone you love, you're ruining your family life, you're getting arrested, you're losing hour after hour after hour after hour to an app or porn. You know, your life is falling apart in some way that's meaningful to you. That's why people come to treatment. And that's our first task in treatment is to figure out why you're with us and not the, you know, I want to be a better person answer, but the real answer, which is I want to save my relationship or I want to start dating for the first time in my life, or maybe I want to keep this job that I'm in trouble. Uh, with. So that's really the first task. It sounds easy, but it isn't to get somebody to really understand why they're there. 
And then in treatment for sexual disorders, we have to look at their whole sexual history. You know, oftentimes a wife or a spouse or a partner will think, okay, you're going to get there in treatment and you guys are going to talk about everything that's happened in our relationship. And that's absolutely true, especially if you've been together for a while and there's been a lot of cheating and infidelity. But we're also really going to talk to our clients about what was going on before your relationship with them? Because what I understand and what you can hear a lot when you listen to this podcast is that addiction issues stem primarily from early complex trauma, like childhood trauma. The primary problem is not just sexual behavior or drug use. That's the symptom. The problem is someone who doesn't attend to their own emotional needs, who's unaware of their own emotional needs, who certainly is unaware of other people's needs. The problem is most of the clients I work with who are sex and love addicts or drug addicts, they don't often know what they feel or need from anyone. They tend to be more kind of, I can handle this on my own, thank you very much, and I don't have any needs or wants, I'm fine kind of people until they end up drinking, using, and sexually acting out where they look like really desperately needful people, which is more the truth. In other words, one of my tasks in treatment is to help clients understand that they are very needful people. That healthy people who, healthy people have needs, but those people who are unhealthy enough to not be able to get their needs met in positive ways, those people who are unable to go for a walk, talk to a friend, spend some time reading, you know, take a hot bath, go for a workout, find healthy ways to relieve not just stress, but to tolerate the challenges that life brings us. Um, that's what healthy people do. They know that their feelings leave them feeling like they need people and they turn those feelings into reaching out to people and they get support. But that's not what addicts do. Addicts would rather eat dirt than ask for help. So addicts go along living a separate or compartmentalized life where in general, if I want, if I'm feeling upset or needful or desperate or whatever it is, I just go take care of that with my drug or my sex issue. And then I go home and it's like it never happened. In other words, addicts like to live compartmentalized lives where we look like we have it all together and we don't need anything from you. And if you ask us, we'll tell you to bug off. But in fact, we're taking all of our needs, all of our needfulness, all of our fearful vulnerabilities into behavior that allows us to disappear into fantasy. So imagine in treatment that I have to bust the fantasy that there is anything positive about what you do sexually when you're acting out or anything positive uh, about your drug use. And then we have to go into, okay, let's talk about who's been hurt. Let's talk about uh, how your life has not thrived. Let's talk about how things aren't, haven't gone well. And in a lot of ways, this is a hard part of treatment when I have to confront people with the failure of their lives in relationship to their addictions. because. Addicts like to see themselves as doing okay until all of a sudden they can't possibly see themselves doing okay anymore and they realize that they've been in struggle. And what I mean by that is that, and I'll give you an example. I will often say to a gentleman who's coming to treatment, um, you know, you haven't been a very good husband or partner. And he will say, yeah, I know that, you know, I let him down, I let her down, I did this, I cheated, all of that. And then I'll say to them in treatment, and this is a tough one, so what kind of dad do you think you've been if they have children? And it is amazing to me the number of men who have been completely unavailable for their family lives who will turn around and say, oh, oh, I've been a good dad. You know, I never hurt my kids. I was always home on time. They don't know about my sexual stuff. And then I have to say, well, wait a minute. If you're leaving the mother of your child or the father of your child, the other parent involved, feeling anxious, feeling fearful, feeling worried because you're sexually acting out, because you're lying, because you're manipulating, because you're leaving your home unsafe, have you really been a good dad? And the answer is no. In many ways, you've not. This is where the rubber meets the road with a lot of men I work with. They can tolerate seeing themselves in a certain light, and maybe they can begin to tolerate things that are difficult 
to look at and they don't want to. But when it gets into the really painful stuff, oftentimes they'll turn to shame. And I might say something to a man like, you haven't been a very good dad and here's why, and maybe you can improve that. And then he might move in treatment to, I'm a piece of crap, I'm unworthy, look what I did to my kids, look what I did to my wife. And this is um, what we call like a shame spiral. This experience of feeling like I'm unworthy and I'm useless and I've ruined everyone's lives. And, and I hate to say this, but as emotional as it feels and as painful it is as it is, this kind of self-shame, you know, I'm worthless thing, it's also kind of narcissistic. Because if I'm feeling horrible about what a terrible person I've been to my family and how horribly I've treated my friends and how what an awful dad I've been, you know, that that's still all about me. Big surprise. I actually have to help addict clients begin to think about, hmm, how do you think it's been for your spouse who's been living through this? What do you think your family members, what do you think your coworkers and friends have been through? The idea that my behavior hasn't just made my life miserable, but it's made a lot of people miserable. It's caused a lot of pain and the pain isn't going away anytime soon is a really hard thing for people to tolerate. And most of the men I, I see in treatment, uh, you know, I, again, I'm working in a treatment center where with people two weeks to four weeks. And, you know, when they get to that point of shame, I have to say, wait a minute, you know, let's not focus on how terrible you are. And this is often where we begin to talk about trauma. In other words, when someone has had enough of being able to tolerate what they've done, they can just tolerate no more and they're in self-hatred. That's when I can come into treatment and say, well, wait a minute, how'd you grow up? What lessons did you learn about intimacy, relationships, and, and uh, sexuality as a five-year-old, as a seven-year-old, as a 10-year-old, as a 14-year-old, as a 20-year-old? What did you learn in your upbringing about intimacy and relationships? And of course, that's where nine times out of 10, the bad news is. You know, mom and dad were alcoholic and fighting. Dad was mentally ill. Mom was never around. Uh, dad and mom had terrible problems and were screaming all the time. That's when the trauma starts to come out. There was no one there for me. And I spent most evenings at home alone with no one there to take care of me. That kind of trauma, neglect, abuse, inconsistent parenting, and the, the scariness of growing up with um, not knowing whether you're going to be comforted or supported or loved or ignored, uh, that's really where most of the issues that I treat come from. And I don't expect in a two-week or four-week treatment center experience that I am going to cure or solve someone's trauma. In fact, I promise you that I am not. But we can make people aware of it. Um, it's called trauma-informed treatment, meaning that we understand that you didn't make these choices to be sexual with all these people because you thought you were having an off day. You did this because you're really broken inside and you really have some deep and enduring problems with intimacy and relationships and sexuality and closeness and perhaps you know using drugs as a form of escape. When we put all of that down, maybe the way you've been acting toward the people you love is more of a reaction to how you grew up. In other words, maybe you never learned what it was like to be in a healthy family. Never, maybe you never learned what it was like to truly show up for the people you love and have them show up for you. And this is where some of the soothing comes in, if you will, in treatment, because even though I've shown someone that they've treated people really badly and they've done a lot of things that certainly they can embrace as this wasn't okay, I, I wish I hadn't done this, I've really hurt people, and they can start to hate themselves, if you will. Out of that, we can say, well, wait a minute, before you move to self-hatred, let's see what you learned. And really, did you have a solid foundation for love, intimacy, relationships, and connection in your upbringing? Oh, I see. Not so much. Well, then maybe you learned a lot of really crappy lessons. And thus, I can begin to turn a patient from, I did all these awful things because I'm an awful person, to, wow, a lot of really crappy things happened to me. And I didn't really learn all the lessons I needed to learn growing up. And so how could I have been a better dad and a better father considering I didn't have a particularly good experience with my upbringing? And that, looking at trauma in that way, is not an excuse. 
It's not giving someone permission to go out, oh, well, I had trauma, so I'm just a drunk. Oh, I had trauma, so I'll just have sex with 300 people. No, no, no. <laughs> the point of that is to honor and acknowledge the trauma and to, to begin to realize that in some ways to act out sexually or use drugs to escape into isolation and compartmentalization and move away from the people you love when you're in pain is like experiencing that trauma all over again. And when I work with a client who is acting out sexually, acting out with drugs, you know, I, I know that they are in a way trying to find ways to tolerate the intolerable. Now, it's not intolerable for you and me if we're not an addict uh, or we don't have these histories. It's not intolerable if someone yells at us or gets upset with us or if we get rejected or for most people, we just lick our wounds and keep moving. But if you have deep and enduring experiences of neglect, abandonment, abuse, and the like, or even profound enmeshment where you felt like a parent was all over you and you just couldn't get them away, kind of the Ken Adams married to mom kind of stuff, you know? Those are the kinds of issues that lead to adult addictions. And so here's the deal. I think Jamie March said it best. Now you know what's going on with you. Sorry that happened. This is where you landed because of the trauma, having an addiction and an intimacy problem. So what are you going to do about it? And that's really what treatment begins again, is saying, okay, I've got you to look at your problem. I've got you to understand the depth of it. We have a name of it. We understand a little bit about where it came from. We've looked at all the other issues that may contribute to it, like drugs, like alcohol, like abuse, like trauma, like work situations, like stress. And now we're going to figure out, gee, what are the things out there that make you triggered into using or triggered into sexing? Is it having a fight with someone? Is it a bad day? Is it a certain part of town? Is it, and we're going to go, is it vacations? Is it travel? We're going to go through every detail of your life, seeing where and how you've ended up choosing to act out sexually or act out with sex and drugs. And then we're going to figure out what are the triggers, what are the primary issues that were triggering that desire, which you carried out in the past, to act out. And if you experience that trigger again, what are you going to do? So we're beginning to help people identify what are the things, the emotional touch points or the physical places I might go that leave me, or the apps I might use, that leave me feeling triggered to act out. And then when I feel triggered to go use them or act out in that way, act out means use, drink, act out sexually, gamble, whatever the addiction is. Once I've begun to figure out what it is that were my triggers, now I can begin to learn what to do to not do that. In other words, I will never tell a client, you're not going to lust again. You're not going to desire to use again. You're not going to desire to go act out again because that would be a lie. But what I can tell them is, listen, when you feel like doing this again, and this is a big part of treatment, then beginning to understand it doesn't mean what you think. Just because you want to go have sex in the middle of the day doesn't mean you're aroused. It doesn't mean you're horny. It could mean that something got triggered inside of you and you want to escape that through fantasy and intensity as quickly as you can. So rather than going out and having sex when you feel like it, why don't you begin to check that out, that impulse, that desire to go disappear into sex or disappear into drugs, and then we build in the final and probably the most important element of treatment, which is relationships. So folks, you know, you hear me week after week or session after session talking about attachment, trauma, relationships, intimacy. This is where the, the, the rubber hits the road. You know, throughout my lifetime, I've seen people get well by going to 12-step programs. Well, you may or may not like, not like 12-step programs like AA or NA or, or CMA or SA or any of them, but here's what they do. They bring isolated people together in a place where they can safely talk about painful topics and get support. Wow, that's almost like a healthy family, bringing people together where they talk about difficult things and they get support. Not the family I grew up in, not the family most of my clients grew up in, but going to in a place like a 12-step meeting is beginning to evoke 
the kind of experience that you want to have in life, where you raise your hand and you say, wow, I had a really crappy day and I felt like drinking, using, acting out. And someone says, you know, I'm really sorry about that. And would you like to go for a cup of coffee? You know, where we get the kind of support that many of us never got growing up. Many of us will avoid groups, avoid social support, avoid deep friendships because we don't want to be known, especially as an active addict. I mean, you want to have your life split into pieces so that some people know this and some people know that, and nobody knows everything but you. That's the life of an addict. But as a healthy recovering person, you want to be open and clear with boundaries with a, with a whole lot more people. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. You know, I will often have a client come into treatment at Seeking Integrity and they'll say, oh, I have so many friends. I have lots of friends. I have a very active social life. And I'll say to them, well, how many of your friends know about your sexual behavior or your drug use? Uh, Well, uh, uh, not very many. Oh, okay. So how many friends do you really have? In other words, when we reveal parts of ourselves to people, it's still playing a game, you know, and part of the recovery process is letting the important people in your life know everything. No more secrets, no more hiding. This is where we get into stuff like disclosure in relationships uh, that are moving forward, where we want spouses to understand what the relationship history has been. So in treatment, we are now talking about identifying triggers, helping people understand how to address not engaging them. And most importantly, and this happens throughout any good treatment, is helping people to make use of other people for healing. Some of you ask me what I think God is, and I'll just throw it out here. I think God is when two people come together and they are more than they were when they were two separate people. When there are two people together, there's more than one. And when you bring people together and you promote an environment of healing, it's the same thing as it happens in the body. You know, if I break a bone or I have a fever, if you put me in the right environment with the right support, I will get better. And if you put me with my emotional challenges and my emotional brokenness and my addictions in the right places to heal, I will heal there also. And the sad and challenging thing about addiction and really mental health in general is that you don't recover alone. As much as we have shame and embarrassment and discomfort, and by the way, this is for you spouses too. I get that you say, oh my God, well, my husband or my wife is in treatment, but why do I need help? Well, you need help because you've been living with a crazy person. When you've been living with someone who's lying to you, using, sexing, manipulating you, telling you half secrets, once you start to find out about this stuff, it's going to be a nightmare for you. And you as a spouse need the support to get through this crisis in life. Finding out that your partner has deeply and profoundly kept secrets in a way that is hurtful to you and your whole family and and that you may never be able to forget or forgive is is a crisis. It's a trauma of its own. And it needs all of its own help if the partnership is going to heal. So where are we now? We're talking about relationships in the treatment process. So I got to tell you, when I run a treatment center, I run a tight ship, which means the trains run on time. Everyone shows up at the same time, leaves at the same time. There's a lot of structure, a lot of accountability, a lot of pushing the clients to lean into each other and rely on each other. See, I know that if you've got a hurting wife or husband at home, and you go home to them, they're not going to be your primary support. They're angry at you. They're hurting. 
But if you can begin to build the support of other recovering people, whether that's in a therapy group or a treatment center, the most important thing for me to get across to the men I treat is that they need other men who will support them for healing. They need other non-sexual relationships with peers and other men who will support them so that when I feel like sexually acting out and it seems like the best thing since sliced bread and I just want to go do it, I can say, okay, well, maybe I can and maybe I can't. But first I got to call this person who knows me really well, who I went through treatment with, who I went through a treatment program with, or who I went to 12-step meetings with, et cetera. And I'm going to call that person and they get to decide whether I have sex or not. Well, I got to tell you, I sponsored many, many people, supported many people in recovery before I ever became a therapist. And I only had one rule with them, which is you can have as much sex as you want or use as many drugs as you want, but you have to ask me first. And if you can get me to agree with you that you can go out and do all this stuff, then you can. And what I was doing with them, even before I was a therapist, I think I knew this, is that to bring their isolated fears, their isolated desire to escape reality into the light by them sharing it with another healthy person, that means that person is much, much stronger. Because I can sit there and say, well, I totally get that you want to go have sex with all these strangers and use these drugs, but let's just talk about it a little bit. And to be honest, as a peer, what I'm going to say to that person is not much about their using or their sexing. I'm going to remind them about what it's like after, after the sexing, after the using, when you have to go home and you're out of money and you feel dirty and you feel uncomfortable and you're ashamed. Because most of us, when we're thinking about going to act out or use, we're only thinking about the fun of it. We're not thinking about where it's going to lead us after all the fun is over. So one of the gifts of talking to somebody or having communication and relationships with other people who are healing is that they can call you out on the stuff that you are either unwilling to call yourself out on or you don't know how. I don't know anybody who comes out of a treatment center and knows how to handle every situation intuitively and natively on their own. (laughs) I wish I could promise that, but I can't. But I'll tell you this, when someone leaves treatment, if they leave good treatment, they have learned to make use of other people before they make bad decisions. They've learned to make use of other people for support, for direction. You know, again, healthy people learn through meaningful, supportive childhood experiences that they can depend on people. Healthy people in healthy families learn to depend on people. Healthy people who grew up in unhealthy families learn to depend on themselves. And as a child, that may be the best strategy you have in a crazy environment, but as an adult, trying to depend on yourself for all of life's needs just ain't going to work. We need other people and we need them in a big way. And unfortunately, addicts tend to dismiss their needs for others to support them, but will manipulate the hell out of someone to try to get something from someone without actually asking for it. So a lot of treatment toward the end is helping my clients understand what do they really need from people? How can they communicate what they need? What happens when they feel like acting out? And what will they do instead? And how can they begin to work through over time the emotional energy and pain that drives their desire or used to drive or did drive their desire to act out or use? So how long is treatment? Um, I think for someone who is entering early treatment and just starting the process. If you come into something like a two-week program after doing some psychotherapy and some 12-step work, you know, you're going to be in good shape to, to really get what you need out of it. Some people who have um, more profound trauma or more profound multiple issues like multiple addictions or co-occurring mental health issues with addiction, those folks need more time. And that's where your 28-day or longer kind of program comes in. 
And by the way, a little bit about treatment. You know, I think I've said this before, but therapists, you know, we look at, at treatment as being a continuum, a whole line of care. So, you know, if you've got some kind of problem with compulsive sexuality or drugs, you know, first you read some books and you make a few commitments to yourself and try to change. And if that doesn't work, you go see a therapist or you go to some 12-step meetings and then maybe you go to some more meetings and you're still struggling. Maybe you go to more therapy. Maybe you enter a therapy group. Okay, you're still struggling and acting out. Maybe you need to see a psychiatrist. Maybe you need a medication evaluation. Maybe there's depression or anxiety. Oops, we've reached the maximum of what I can do for you as an outpatient therapist. You're going to groups, you're going to individual, you're going to support groups, you're on medication, and you're still really struggling in very painful ways for the for yourself and the people you love. Okay, now we need to look at intensives, workshops, and residential treatment. It's not a shameful thing. It just means that we've gone as far as we can and you are still needing more support in order to be able to stop. And that's why we're there. We're the big uh, net to catch you when you fall. I mean, that's what treatment is. And I do want to say this too, you know, now that I'm ramping on about or rambling on about treatment, but I've had so many people say to me like, oh, well, you know, treatment is just an excuse for people to get away with bad behavior and have people feel sorry for them. And you know what? They're right. <laughs> A lot of people go to treatment simply because they want to get out of their consequences and they want people to feel sorry for them. And you know what? I don't care about that. It doesn't matter to me what gets somebody to treatment. Their motivation is irrelevant to me. What I want is their butt in the door. Because once I have somebody in treatment, I can begin to shape the way they're thinking and help their understanding, even if they, they aren't fully sure they belong there. And I've had people certainly in treatment who were what I would call pre-treatment. They didn't really understand they had a problem at all. And they were mostly blaming their spouse well, uh, or somebody else or something else. By the way, let's talk a little bit about looking at early trauma and the, the blame game. I, I think that, you know, some of you heard me talk about this. I have had a mentally ill mother who's passed and she was psychotic and very crazy. And literally at two years old, I had the mom who was running out in the street with knives naked and chasing after people and the ambulance had to come take her away. I mean, I had a nightmare childhood. And for many years, I think I had to distance myself from mom and, and uh, family and sort of figure this stuff out. I had to be angry. I had to be afraid. I, but ultimately, healing things with your family is not about, ultimately, I don't believe, full detachment and separation unless they're truly actively abusive, in which case it's probably a good idea. But ultimately, healing is not about, you know, you live in Ohio and you move to New York and you don't talk to your parents ever again. Healing is about coming to terms with what happened and finding a way to come to peace with it. And so it's not like the people who traumatize you aren't going to be in your world or trauma isn't going to come up. But as Dr. Jamie March was talking about, you have a way to, to understand that trauma, understand those triggers, work with that, and you're not alone with it. And I think ultimately what happens in treatment, and you guys probably won't believe me when I tell you this, but if treatment is done right, if I can really create an environment with my peers that feels right to me, then I know that what the patients are going to get or what the clients are going to get more than anything is this deep sense that people can be there for me because they've sat in groups for two weeks or a month talking about every awful thing they've ever done. They've read a letter maybe that their wife read or their wrote or their partner wrote saying all the painful things they did in their marriage and everybody in the group knows about it. And yet people will give you a hug. People will give you support. People in group will say or in treatment will say, I think it was really courageous of you to share that. You see, the thing about treatment is I'm not your wife. I'm not your husband. I'm not your kid. I'm, I'm just a therapist. We're just professionals. And that means that we're not as reactive or as upset by or as angry at or as shameful about the things you've done or your spouse has done. We have a much more neutral reaction to it. And in that way, we can talk about these things without shaming you or judging you. 
And I understand that, you know, if you're an addict and you've been active and causing problems, you have a lot of people angry at you and there's good reasons for it. And it's good for you to hear that anger and experience it from the people that you've hurt. But when you go into treatment, you know, other patients aren't angry at you. Other clients aren't angry with you. I'm not angry at you, but I am very carefully listening to the problem and how it's come about and with a lot of empathy and a lot of support for the client. And I want to say to all of you spouses out there who are just mad as crap at the person who cheated on you or is doing drugs and you want to just go out there and kill them and I validate you, I support you, I've written books for you, but in the treatment environment, I'm not angry at the addict. I'm not ashamed of the addict. I'm not embarrassed. I just want them to get better. And the path for the therapist in addiction treatment is the one that we weaves between empathy and challenge. You know, I have to challenge someone to look at their thinking differently and understand that if they keep doing things the way they've been doing them, they're going to lose very important people and things and their, their life will never be the same. At the same time, I have to tell them that I understand why they made those choices and I really believe that they're not a bad person, but more someone who's kind of broken. Now, being a broken person can be tricky, and this is my last comment for you. It can never be a reason to act out. I never can justify my sexual behavior, my drug use, any of it by saying, well, mom did this and dad did that and I had this horrible childhood, so what do you want? I'm an addict. That's, not, that's the opposite of the work we do. There are people who think that addiction, for some reason, is like an excuse for bad behavior, and I see it so differently. So let me help you understand what saying I am an addict means, or I have a problem means. To me, if you say, hi, I'm Rob and I'm an alcoholic or I'm a sex addict or I have, you know, or I'm a drug addict, whatever it is, what you're saying to me is a number of things. You're saying to me that you are a human being who is struggling with issues and you're aware of them and you're trying to work on them. If you are aware that you are an addict, that is not an excuse. It's a responsibility. It's like learning you have diabetes or you have a heart condition. You can ignore those things too and you will get sicker and sicker or you can pay attention and you will get better or stable. And it's the same thing with addiction. Um, we have to acknowledge it. We have to own it. We have to embrace it in all of its ugliness. And if we don't, then we're really not capable of knowing how much worse it could get the next time. And we need to always hold that in mind. You know, I, I guess this is my last comment to you about addiction in general. You know, I'm an addict and being an addict has caused me a lot of pain and loss in my life. And I wish that were different. But I have to tell you on this, at the same time that the opportunity to own addiction and own that label or that thing as being me has brought a world of freedom. Because in being able to acknowledge a problem, now I'm not alone. Now I don't have to figure it out on my own or by myself. Now I don't have to hide who I am or what I struggle with. I can be open, not with everyone about everything, but the word integrity comes to mind. And, and I will finish with this. I, I named our treatment programs Seeking Integrity because the word integrity has a great deal of meaning for me in terms of recovery. If you think about the word integrity, it really comes from the word integration. And the word integration is about bringing separate parts together into a whole. I think that's pretty much what integration is. Well, if you're an addict, you are living a whole bunch of separate lives in all kinds of different places and lying to this person about that and compartmentalizing this issue and not being honest about that. So how clear it is to me that recovery is about integration, that I am the same person wherever I go, however I'm acting, who I'm with. You're not surprised if you learn something about me. There aren't any big surprises because I just am who I am and I don't have anything to hide and I don't have anything in boxes over in the corner. And when I come to meet you at the end of the day, you see me as I am, not with secrets, not with things hidden. Remember I said I was going to say that the last thing here? Well, here is the last thing. 
I've had many addicted clients who were getting tremendous love from people in their lives, but they weren't able to take it in because they didn't think they deserved it. When you're actively drinking, using, sexing, acting out, you know that if your spouse, if your family, if the people who loved you knew about this, they would be hurt or angry. So when you keep it to yourself, you also keep yourself cut off, not only from their knowing about your addiction, but you keep yourself cut off from the love that might be available to you. Because every one of us wants that partner or spouse or loved one to come up and say, wow, I love you. You're great. I just am so glad I'm with you. But if we know that, gosh, you know, if he or she knew about what I'd done last night or what I did yesterday, they maybe they wouldn't love me so much. You see, if we have those kind of secrets as addicts and we compartmentalize our lives, then we're really not ever fully capable of receiving love because we don't ever really feel that we deserve it. And in order to receive and deserve love, you have to live a life of integrity. And that's what recovery and treatment's all about. So anyway, I hope this has been helpful for you. Uh, you guys know how to reach me. I'm Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. And I will continue doing these shows to try to support the understanding of how addiction and trauma go together and, and of the hard work that every addict who is willing to do the hard work does to reclaim their life and reclaim love. Take good care. We'll talk soon. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.